Yeah, I was very proud of you, and now uh, you completely ruined it. You are the Mark Rutte of this podcast. No, you're the, you're, you're the, sorry, you're the Hugo de Jonger of this podcast. That's a, you're both, <laughs> you're both. <laughs> Rolling in, in some horrible, high, ghastly hybrid. <laughs> Franken's, coalition Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> It's Friday, April 9th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, a master's student in civil engineering and submarine grillmeister. And with me today uh, is Gordon Tarek, contributing editor, Dutch News and celebrity letter writer. And hopefully we will later be joined by Robin Pasco, editor-in-chief of Dutch News and um, a permanent technical difficulty um, sufferer. <laughs> yeah, this seems to be a recurring yeah. theme. Every time Robin joins us uh, there seems to be a technical problem just as uh, everything's good usually she messages to say everything's going absolutely fine right up to the moment when we start recording so yeah. make of that what you will yeah indeed yeah so uh, hopefully at some point in uh, in one of the stories he will pop up and then you will suddenly hear a voice and uh, then you will yes. know that it's it is robin pasco yeah you'll know the technical problems have been cleared yeah i can only assume that tahuko de Younger is in charge of her uh, <laughs> of her it systems because everything, everything exactly. keeps going wrong in exactly the wrong moment. <laughs> yeah, she's just having a field lab with a laptop and a microphone, <laughs> exactly, I think. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But meanwhile, uh, Paul, you've been spending the weekend uh, barbecuing on the deck of a submarine, right? Well, actually, I wished I spent my weekend <laughs> that way because I think it is definitely one of my bucket list items right now. Yeah. Um, I saw, uh, I think, uh, for the first time, a report from one of the British media. Um, uh, I believe it was uh, some local news um, uh, paper from Cornwall. Yeah, it was Cornwall Live. It was a website. Ah, it was a website. Yeah. And they reported that um, there was a, um, uh, a submarine just off the coast of Cornwall and uh, it appeared to be that the entire crew was having a barbecue on top of it, which is mm. uh, a, a remarkable sight indeed. Uh, it turned out to be a Dutch submarine. It yep. was the uh, Zijner Majesteit Dolphin, which means dolphin. Yeah, it was, it was a, it's a walrus-class submarine I was yeah. reading. Yeah. I know nothing about submarines, but I read this on social media. Um, yeah, and its name was the dolphin. So. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we are, uh, our, our, uh, all our submarines are called uh, after sea animal, and uh, this was the dolphin. And uh, yeah, they, uh, they, it was a 68 meter long vessel, and uh, you know, it was um, spending the, with their Easter weekend uh, having a barbecue. So uh, yeah, yeah they, why uh, not? It was sunny. It was, it was uh, sunny. Probably, yeah, nice weather off the coast of Cornwall. So they got the barbecue. They did what Dutch people do as soon as there's a glimpse of sunshine, <laughs> and they got the barbecue out. Presumably, they'd been they'd been shopping in Yumbo the weekend before, and they picked up some like some bargain three for two. Uh, barbecue meats and, and, and some charcoal even when you're down underwater <laughs> dozens of dozens of meter you will pop yeah. out uh, as soon as the sun shines and uh, yeah. yeah you exactly. uh, you have a barbecue yeah that's what you do yeah indeed yeah funny enough i know somebody who's moved down to that village in cornwall on the coast uh, it's a place called mouse hole and literally moved there at the weekend uh, when this was happening but uh, she she was unpacking boxes and missed the whole spectacle Oh so really? Yeah. But yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Well, next Easter maybe she has uh, uh, yeah. more luck. Maybe the Dutch will be back with their, yeah. with their submarine barbecue. And also, um, I just read this now, the submarine was also in the news a year ago because 58 crew members tested positive for coronavirus during yes. a training exercise near uh, Fastlane Naval Base in Scotland. Yeah, Fastlane so. Naval Base, which is on the Clyde in Scotland, uh, just across the water from Glasgow, hmm. which is where they keep the nuclear submarines. So ah, uh, yeah. I wonder. Yes. I wonder how how do these nuclear submarines are called, or do they also have very cute names like Dolphin and uh, Yeah uh, Nemo? I don't know. Maybe they're called like uh, radioactive squid or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fukushima crap, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and Gordon, uh, you are a celebrity letter writer. What's that about? Well, I'm not. I'm pleased to say <laughs> it's. Uh, this is just something that popped up. Um, that something I've noticed uh, is has become. Well, it hasn't become. It's been for a long time a trend on uh, uh, social media. The, 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 it's just a curious phenomenon of uh, the, the kind of careers you get in social media journalism, where the, the, there's uh, the, there's a person. I'm not going to name him, but there's uh, he's, he's quite well Young known. Young yeah, okay. He basically spends his, he seems to spend his old, his kind of USP, if you like, is to uh, write letters to people who've been in the news um, yeah. in a slightly kind of uh, sarcastic tone and publish them online. 
Yep. And apparently this is a career. So and it's got a large following for doing it. But it just seems like a really seems like an odd thing to you to do. It seems to me like a very odd thing to do. I think he's been doing this for years, but yeah. um, I have I managed to to keep my timeline uh, Jan Dijkgraaf free for a very long yeah. time. I do know that he that this is his uh, way of writing columns. I do know that, but uh, yeah. I I never read them. Um, so yeah, I I'm just uh, I just ignore it. Yeah, and but, I think uh, that's the more sensible thing to do. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's one of those things. In, 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 that if it pops, if you see in your Twitter c- trending column, do you see uh, anything like a Jan Dijkhoff or Briefy von Jan, like or Johan Derksen in yeah. the trending column? You know, just to switch off Twitter for the next six hours, exactly, because it's going to be an absolute shit show. Yeah, basically, yeah. So useful tip if you're on Dutch Twitter. Yeah, I I, I assume that uh, he won't be trending on uh, on any other Twitter uh, uh, languages. I hope not. I hope I not for the it. rest of the world. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. yeah. It's bad enough that he's uh, intelligible to the Belgians, let alone the rest yeah. of the, the, the Twitter sphere. Um, okay, uh, speaking of uh, unsolicited mail, uh, well, this that brings us uh, around neatly to uh, the op-hef of the week, which comes from uh, the Achterhoek. So yeah. uh, what's it all about? I really had to look for this uh, for this op-hef because there was only one op-hef uh, in the past week and that was Mark Rutte. Yes. But I managed to find one. It was a very local one. I don't think anyone else have heard of it, but I thought it was an interesting op-hef nonetheless. Um, yeah, it's coming from Twente in the east of the Netherlands. You said the Achterhoek, but I think that's a different... Uh, I always uh, uh, mix the two right. of them. Is the Achterhoek not, in Twente, not part of Twente? No, 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 no. Oh, no. Okay. They're different. I just always... Uh, People are going to write in now or, yeah. Yeah, if, if they've still got post boxes, I'm not Briefje van Jan aan Gordon Derek. Yeah, many eyebrows were raised by people living in Berkelland, uh, which is in Twente, when they found a folder in their mail advertising the party truck 3MMC. There was also a QR code on the folder, and that led to a website where the party truck could easily be uh, ordered. Uh, apparently, uh, 3MMC is uh, described as something between ecstasy and cocaine. Um, yeah, unfortunately, Molly isn't on this podcast anymore, otherwise we could have asked her. Yeah, um, for advice. For advice, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the drug is, uh, yeah, so you order it online and then the drug is delivered to you by PostNL via the regular mail. Uh, mm. The designer drug exists since 2012 and it is becoming more popular, especially in Twente. Uh, the chemical configuration of 3MMC is slightly different from another drug called 4MMC and it is therefore not yet on the list of forbidden substances, making it legal to sell and send to uh, to people. Uh, and that's much to the frustration of Mayor Joost van Oostrum, who called the folders unacceptable. A bill to add 3MMC to the list of illegal drugs have been delayed due to the coronavirus, but the mayor has sent a letter to Justice Minister Fert Grapperhaus to urge him to make uh, haste with the bill. Yeah. But I always remember when I, when I, whenever I think of Fert Grapperhaus uh, in a drug uh, related context, I immediately picture myself this picture of him with uh, this enormous bag of ecstasy uh, <laughs> looking at it as if he is in love with it. Do you, do you recognize that picture? Do you know I- I, that slipped my mind, I have to say, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, uh, Fair Top House is famous for t- taking or, or, or for featuring in very uh, strange, incongruous photo shoots. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> indeed. With, with, yeah, with, I, with, with weird props like hats and umbrellas and all oh, kinds of things. So a big bag I thought of drugs you meant his wedding. <laughs> well, there's that as well. Yeah, no, no, yeah, 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 that's another. Yes, yeah, weird uh, props such, such as his mother-in-law. <laughs> indeed. <yeah. laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, but if you you should take a look at this Instagram account. It is uh, it is a remarkable uh, remarkable sight to see him posing with all these weird objects and uh, yeah, it's uh, b- but he also posed with an enormous bag of ecstasy that was just conf- confiscated by the police and he looks at this uh, looks at it as if he is in love with it. Of course, because he is uh, the justice minister, so he's happy that it is confiscated. But otherwise, you would wouldn't know if he just loves ecstasy or not. Yeah. Is there any way do you think that we can get the illegal drug dealers um, to distribute the vaccines around the Netherlands? Because they seem so much better at it than you know than anything uh, else. Are getting substances passed around than anyone else uh, who's, who's tried it so far? I think this would be a, a brilliant solution. I mean, they should all get jobs with AstraZeneca, frankly. Yeah. Why not? I think uh, it's a it's a brilliant idea. And by no means the worst idea relating to coronavirus experiments that uh, anyone's come <laughs> up with this week this week either. I mean, nothing could be worse than foot- watching football in Flevoland. <laughs> <laughs> 
This week, Prime Minister Mark Rutte had the toughest debate of his political career. We saw the return of not one, but two elderly men to the Binnenhof, and there's news about stolen artwork. Oranje also played several games, and we tell you why fish in Utrecht have a doorbell. Yeah, we, we really uh, chose the, the wrong week to uh, to have a, uh, to have a break, didn't we, uh, Gordon and Robin? Uh, yes. Yeah, you sort of think over the Easter weekend, nothing's going to happen. And then, yeah, yeah guess what, things well, happen. It's Easter, nothing's going to happen. Or No, let me rephrase. Jesus chose the wrong weekend to die and resurrect. Yes, because <laughs> it was probably the, only the third most spectacular comeback of the week. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Robin is the fourth now because we didn't expect her to return. Yeah. There you go. I know. I, I will go down in history as the, the worst person on the internet <laughs> ever. And I thought I was so organized this week. But yeah, sometimes fates just conspire against you. And they are doing work on next door. So you might hear the odd buzz as well. They're fiddling with the internet. But that's not my internet. So it should be okay. Yes. Uh, as I said, uh, last week saw the, the toughest week of Mark Rutte. And we will run you down everything. We, I have prepared a detailed minute-to-minute account. So um, just stay tuned. We will uh, we will uh, 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 run you through it entirely. But just to start with a little recap, here is what happened until our last episode. Uh, after the election, D66 minister Kaisa Olongren and VVD Senate leader Annemarie Joritsma were appointed as verkenners. They were tasked to lead exploratory talks to find the political party is most likely to succeed in forming a coalition. They met behind closed doors with all 17 party leaders individually to discuss how they thought the next coalition should look like. These meetings were held in the Stadthouderskamers in the presence of a number of officials who take notes. And that's a detail that will turn out to be very important. The whole saga was set in motion when Kaisa Alongren was tested positive with coronavirus and she had to leave the Binnenhof right before a meeting with VVD leader and Prime Minister Mark Rutte and these 60 leader Sigrid Kaag was scheduled and in her hurry uh, she accidentally showed her confidential notes to the photographers as she was stepping into her car. A number of interesting insights could be read but the most explosive line was positie omzicht functie elders position omzicht job elsewhere. Uh, this note gave the impression that the VVD and or D66 leaders were actively trying to get the popular and highly appreciated CDA MP Pieter Omzicht out of parliament by offering him a new job. Um, I was wondering what kind of job should, could they offer him that he would want to accept? I mean, he would, will never accept uh, the mayor, being a mayor of Den Helder or something, right? So presumably uh, when they were asked, uh, Rutten Kaag had a complete explanation for what was going on um, that, would, that, that satisfied everybody. Yes, they denied everything. <laughs> um, the document turned out to be uh, the, the document that was leaked turned out to be written by one of the officials present, and it was based on the talks already held, but also on reports in the media. And it was meant as they said it possible input for the next meeting with Rutte and Kaag. The verkenners Rutte and Kaag said they didn't understand where these four words uh, positie, omzicht, functie, elders came from because they didn't discuss a job elsewhere for omzicht. Um, and also asked by a journalist of RTL News a day later if he had discussed Pieter omzicht at all, Mark Rutte denied that he had even mentioned his name and he also added that it was impossible for the old verkenners to give an explanation to the Tweede Kamer because at that point they had already resigned. But over the weekend, uh, both former Afrikaners said they would, of course, come to the Tweede Kamer to answer MPs' questions. It starts to resemble a bit of a soap opera here, Paul. Well, we haven't even started yet, Robin, so... uh... Fasten your seatbelts. Uh, on the Wednesday before Easter, the new Tweede Kamer was installed. Pieter Omzicht was also present for the swearing-in ceremony, despite re- uh, recovering from overwork. He told reporters that he hoped it would become clear who wrote the note about another job, which he described as an affront to the Dutch voter. Immediately after the ceremony, a debate on the Omzicht memo was held. The new parliament wanted complete openness and, and transparency and demanded that all records of the meetings with party leaders were made public. Mark Rutte suggested only his part should be published, but he was overruled by the, tw- by the rest of the Tweede Kamer. Collecting all documents apparently took a very long time, so the debate was postponed until the next day. And there were sort of two sets of documents that were released. First of all were the, um, uh, uh, the documents that uh, Kaisa Longen was carrying under her arm that we already had on Wednesday um, uh, afternoon. Um, and it showed some very interesting uh, insights in, in these uh, negotiations. For example, GroenLinks uh, said that they were willing to compromise on basically everything. And the CDA said that uh, they 
I basically said didn't say anything because there was a nice little table with uh, which summarized all the party positions on different topics and uh, everything of the CDA under the CDA um, uh, in the CDA column was empty. Yeah. which was very interesting. And there was a big section as well on whether or not uh, other parties could be persuaded to go into a coalition with Echid Wilders, right, with the PPV. There was another yeah, they had a whole it. page on, yeah. on, on uh, everyone should explain why and uh, give a thorough explanation yeah. uh, on, on why they didn't want to uh, form a coalition with the PPV, which yeah, seemed... Even though all the parties have been spending years explaining uh, carefully yeah. why they will never go into a coalition with the PPV. Yeah, and the... So that was strange. Uh, and Geert Wilders also doesn't give the impression that he wants to cooperate with other parties. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, usually these all these documents remain secret, right? We never mm. see them. Uh, we never know what, 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 what these people talk about behind closed doors. So it was very insightful and very interesting to see finally um, uh, how a formation works. Okay, so the big question at this point then was who had actually brought up Peter Omsicht's uh, name? And was there a dramatic uh, unexpected twist in the saga? Of course there was, um, because on Thursday morning, the second set of documents were published, and these were the detailed minutes uh, made by public officials. They were handwritten, and they were very hard to read, I have to admit. It was uh, almost as if they had uh, uh, a bunch of GPs taking their notes. Um, and an absolute shockwave went through The Hague, because according to these notes, Mark Rutte had indeed talked about Peter Omzicht. He had said he should be given a ministerial post, which many saw as an attempt to silence Omzicht. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I think the exact phrase was something like, isn't, was it not uh, a moedwaard met Omzicht? Which basically means it was something needs to be done about Omzicht. Which yeah, sounds I kind of so quite mafia-esque. Yeah, if you put it like that in English, then it sounds mafia-esque. I think in Dutch, it's uh, uh, it, it doesn't mean the same thing. It doesn't have right. the same ring. It just means that, uh, yeah, um, uh, mm, uh, perhaps it's a good idea to give him a ministerial post. And later, later, Mark Rutte said that he was responding to uh, articles that came out over the weekend where uh, Rob Hoekstra also had suggested something like that. And uh, uh, um, but it just seems very strange that um, you have these talks, and these are not th- the most common talks that you have. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a coalition negotiation, and you talk about someone, and three days later. None of these people, none of the three people, not not the dumbest persons on on the Binnenhof, all mm. forgot about it. it. Just seems very unlikely. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that so that kind of uh, set the cat among the pigeons, and of course, so then we had the debate. Uh, yeah. So what happened there? Yeah, uh, because at that point it became clear that Mark Rutte was going to have to fight for his political life uh, in this debate. Uh, Rutte admitted in the debate to MPs that the, the notes revealed that he had indeed mentioned Omzicht in the talks, but he said he couldn't remember this, and therefore he didn't lie when he told reporters he hadn't discussed Omzicht with the Verkenners. And yeah, you really, <laughs> you could really, I mean, the other MPs in the room, they were all laughing about this, right? It's mm. um, when he said this. Um, I'm not surprised. I mean, I have to just say that we're talking to friends here who come from countries, other countries. They're a bit like, sorry, this is your political scandal. And a, a prime minister may have lied. You know, these are people like, you know, from Romania said to me, you should see our government. You know, and then I had to say, well, I'm British. You should see ours. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it becomes a kind of incompetence of what upmanship. Yeah, it? I know. Can, I mean, can can you put it in any perspective, Paul? I mean, is this really such a big deal or is it part of something that Rutter's done more often? It is uh, It is indeed part of something that he does uh, very often because every time, I believe it was uh, Jesse Klaver who said in the debate that it is just very, uh, it, it's such a coincidence that every time Mark Rutte is in a difficult situation, he has this, uh, 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 he has this, um, he has this uh, forgetfulness, right? I, I also love the, the moment in the debate where Mark Rutte forgot the word amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> what is it called again? Oh yeah, amnesia. Um, Did you shout for Caroline? Uh, no, I didn't. We should have. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had every scandal where Mark Rutte was involved with, and we're talking about the Bolletjes affair, uh, Halber Selstra's visit to Vladimir Putin's Dacia, civilian casualties in Horvitsa. Uh, he always had, uh, he always said that he didn't remember uh, crucial things, right? And, um, um, you know, that could happen when, because this stuff happened years before they uh, they were revealed. But this time, as I said, it was only three days ago. You can't claim that you forgot something like this 
three uh, after three days in my opinion mm. and it also of course um, touches upon the reason why his cabinet fell in the first place right uh, the uh, the uh, the child benefit scandal uh, he also said on numerous occasions that he was informed but he didn't remember it and uh, uh, and now he was uh, talking about Peter Omzicht the very guy who uh, almost single-handedly brought the government down so it's just yeah. a it's not just uh, because he lied about uh, talking about Peter Omzicht it's just accumulation of all these scandals that he had uh, that we that he had seen in in the past years I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that, and I think uh, people miss that uh, that aspect of it sometimes. It does look like a very much a storm in a teacup, and lots of uh, people have commented on that. But I think that misses the detail that uh, this all stems from um, the fact that this government collapsed over this child benefit scandal and the huge you know, loss of trust in the government and the, the way the government deals with um, but there wasn't, you know, ordinary but, taxpayers. But there wasn't a big loss of trust in the government because Mark Ritter's party won the election with more votes. That's right, but uh, 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 I, I think a lot of people um, who f who didn't vote for the favor day uh, do uh, uh, have this lack of trust in the government, and uh, also all the polls shows that just an increasing number of people uh, has lost faith in the government. But uh, Peter Omzicht, uh <laughs> of course, has also lost uh, faith in the government, right? Yeah, and Peter Omzicht was kind of the was one of the heroes of the Tuslaken saga as well, and it looked as if Ritter was trying to sideline him, basically, which is not a good look. And to be doing that right at the start of your coalition term is, um, you know, it's a, it doesn't bode well for for the rest of it. So I think that's why that was a big deal. It was the timing as much as anything. Yeah, and I can understand why you talk about Peter Omzicht because you're talking about forming a coalition with with the CDA who has some troubles with with itself, right? They lost a lot of uh, they lost a lot of seats in the last election. Um, the number two almost won more seats, uh, uh, almost won more preference votes than the number one. So the party is instable. And of course, you're going to talk about the instability of a possible um, uh, coalition partner. But then just be honest about it when it comes out. If he just has said, yeah, we mm. talked about Omsir, but in the context of the stability of the CDA, then everybody would have, would have accepted that and would have moved on, I think. Or at least uh, uh, it would not have been such a big problem as, as it is now. Maybe Ritter's going to come out with some kind of diagnosis then of, of uh, you know, suffering from, um, you know, premature senile dementia or something. I mean, <laughs> selective amnesia. Yeah. Selective dementia. Yeah. But, you know, but Paul, where are we now in the whole thing then? I mean, I've kind of lost lost track basically of what's happening now. Where are we exactly? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Rutte survived the debate. Uh, it was an, a debate of 13 hours. Uh, everyone attacked him uh, uh, as much as they could. But you know, we know Rutte. He survives everything. He he remains Teflon Mark. And yeah. also this uh, this debate, he uh, he survived, but only barely. There was a motion of no confidence. Uh, it was accepted by all parties except the current coalition partners. Um, so that meant that he could stay on as prime minister. But there was also a motion of disapproval, which is something else uh, a little bit different than a motion of no confidence if that is accepted then a minister has to leave but the motion of disapproval has no constitutional consequences but that one was accepted by all parties except the favor day so that was a clear message uh, it was also put to the vote by Sigrid Kaag and uh, Wopke Hoekstra and their message was clear they, th they said well we, we feel like uh, we can't go on with Mark Rutte as favor day leader um, uh, we, we feel like it is probably not a good thing to send the prime minister away in the middle of the crisis but a next coalition should not be with uh, Mark Rutte uh, as prime minister and that was what this motion of uh, disapproval uh, was about it was accepted but you know Mark Rutte if he uh, is not forced out then he just stays on so yeah that was exactly what he did he the motion was accepted and he and he said well I'm just gonna continue but not everybody accepted that though 
No, because uh, the next uh, Saturday, Gert-Jan Segers, who is the leader of the fourth coalition partner, ChristenUnie, gave an interview with uh, Nederlands Dagblad and he said that he uh, ruled out joining a coalition with Mark Rutte as prime minister again. So he was effectively pulling out the plug of the only coalition that seemed possible after Thursday's debate, uh, which is was the co- uh, which was the continuation of the current uh, coalition. Uh, Segers said Rutte is the embodiment of the political culture of the past 10 years uh, which desperately needs to change so yeah that really touches upon what we just discussed this uh, build-up of, of scandals and uh, forgetting stuff and uh, refusing to 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 share information with the parliament um, so yeah it, it at that point it really seemed like this was going to be the end of Margarita yeah, but it looks, it looks as if basically the Rutter doctrine was going to be his downfall it? yeah 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 exactly um, so yeah, when Segers pulled out the plug, we th- I thought again for the second, third time, I think in a couple of days that this was the end of Mark Rutte. But three days later, um, everyone was invited to the Binnenhof to uh, appoint a new informateur. They had asked Herman Cenk Willink uh, to become the new informateur. He is the 79-year-old, widely respected living legend who is always called to find a solution when The Hague has reached an impasse. And he is now uh, tasked to um, restart negotiations on forming a new coalition. But uh, CDA and uh, D66 have already said that they are not ruling out anybody at this point. So that makes a term next term for Mark Rutte all of the sudden uh, a real possibility again. Yeah, and if, if anything, probably the most likely scenario again, really. Yeah. Um, because the, 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 there seems no way around the Fefe Day, uh, given the numbers. So they are the biggest party. And it's very hard to form a coalition. It's hard enough to form a coalition with them because they'll need at least three partners. But it's almost impossible to form one without him and there seems to be I mean the way the Feifei Day lined up behind Rutte uh, after this debate and uh, yeah. you know the Yorosma came in with this very you know uh, uh, because uh, Nijio featured a number of the uh, party's youth organisations saying uh, Rutte should step aside now and Yorosma fired back uh, sort of castigating them for daring to uh, be so presumptuous as How to assume that the, <laughs> exactly <laughs> she it was the almost Greta like Thunberg yeah, of, of the she's, she's yeah. like Greta Thunberg's great aunt isn't she Saying yeah. like yeah, how, how dare you question uh, our, our lord and saviour Mark Rutte <laughs> so anyway it was quite clear the Fei Fei Day were not going to uh, were not thinking about replacing Rutte and really without um, so therefore, without Richard, there was no Fei Day. And without Fei Day, there was no coalition. No. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Paul, if you if you wrote this soap opera, as I described it at the beginning, there's yeah. not going to be a second series because this is really a crap <laughs> answer. You know, I mean, we need a cliffhanger. <laughs> It is. It is. A cr- I was just talking to to, to Gordon uh, before the before the recording. I, I said, "Well, so much happened in the past one and a half week, but in the end, nothing happened. We're still at the same position as we were yeah. uh, two weeks ago." Oh, there was some other political upheaval. Don't forget. Oh, is there? Don't forget. <laughs> There's two new bits. Parliament will have a new chairwoman, D66 MP Vera Berkamp, and secondly, surprise, surprise. Theo Hidema is back. Yes, he's decided he's going to represent the far right Forum for Democracy in the Senate. He's like the sort of the, the anti uh Chink Willink, isn't he, Hidema? It's like <laughs> the, the, these two are opposite poles. Yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he come he comes back like a bad penny, you know, and it's a complicated yeah. story too. So, you know, I mean, if we remember Forum had the right to a third seat in the Senate because Senator Nikki Powell Vervey, who used to be a senator for Forum, is now an MP on behalf of the Forum Splinter Group, Ya 21. You still with me here? Uh, yes. Anyway, Hidema broke up with Thierry Baudet, as you remember, in November in the row about anti-Semitism. In December, he said he would take the symbolic position of bottom of the list of Forum for Democracy candidates for the March general election. But in January, he flipped again and criticised the party for its focus on coronavirus. If you remember, Forum allied itself uh, rather closely with coronavirus sceptics during the campaign. Conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yeah. Think sceptics is not um, not the yeah. right word. It's understating, I think. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and of course, Thierry Baudet held a series of um, uh, super spreading events to to, yeah. to to celebrate the virus. Oh well, that's true. I was trying to be sort of a bit kind to them, but perhaps that was yeah. the wrong move. Um, anyway, now 
Mahidema has told the NRC he's happy return to return to the fold because of the party's manifesto commitments. He said, I've orientated myself fully and I know there are no more coronavirus conspiracy theorists hiding behind the curtain. No, that's because they are in front of them. Exactly. They are standing yeah. proudly in front of them. And it's also worth pointing out, by the way, that Hidema has just enjoyed his 77th birthday on April the 1st. Ah. So he's just uh, one year younger than uh, than uh, Herman Chinkwilling. Yeah, that's well, the case. That's the case. But hmm. of course, there's another sort of change going on, and that's that's with the parliamentary chairwoman. Yes, Nick's in a shock move. Uh, Kadir Arib was uh, was ousted, and no one would have thought. Uh, I think two weeks ago that uh, that she would go earlier than Mark Rutter. No, yeah. no, I think it yeah. was a real surprise to everybody, including herself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she's done the job since 2016, and. She made it very clear that she wanted a third term, but no, uh, Vera Bergkamp, D66, decided quite what went on behind the scenes there, we don't know, to throw her hat in the rig and won. And it was just one voting round. When Arib won the vote last time, it took four rounds for her to win, but this time yeah. one round for uh, Bergkamp. And uh, so that's that's who our new chairman is. I'm not sure what's going to happen to the deputy chairman, who was Martin Bosmer, but... Um, from the PVV. But of course, there's a lot of opposition to him anyway, given the fact that he thinks dual nationals like Arab shouldn't be allowed to vote in Dutch elections anyway. Yeah, I think um, uh, Martin Bosma is respected uh, when he chairs the Tweede Kamer. He is a, he, he's, he's a really good chair. He does the job very well. It's just that um, you should keep him on as a deputy chair because you don't want him to represent the Tweede Kamer as a whole but you know whenever there's uh, th- 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 there's a there's a gap in the schedule then he can just replace it I think that's uh, the, the the highest uh, he will get seems yeah. fair and uh, the, 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 there have been um, a few kind of whispers against uh, Arip and then in, in, in recent months so, so do we think that contributed to her downfall at all I have no idea what's been going on behind the scenes there she was very upset about those reports though because she said they're yeah. all made anonymously by people I work with every day and you know if you're unhappy with the way I do the job say it to my face I think she was right in that but um, anyway we yeah, have but a- I do th- but yeah. I do think it has uh, something to do with it because um, there was, were also whispers about the reason why one of the main reasons why Deze Sester is now uh, becoming more friendly with Mark Rutte after the Easter weekend is because uh, they had made a deal that uh, if if a Deze Sester candidate would um, would run for the for the for the chair uh, election, uh, VVD would vote for them, and uh, it seems to be that that is exactly what happened because if you uh, count the number of seats of Deze as a sister and VVD and also the CDA, um, you have exactly that, uh, almost exactly the, the number of votes um, uh, uh, Vera Bergkamp won. So yeah, there, there are some serious signs that uh, maybe there was made uh, this deal in, uh, in one of the back chambers. Yeah, it was, a, it was a secret ballot, wasn't it? So we don't know how individual MPs voted. Nope. Uh, that's one theory. I think well, Keir Wilders certainly put that theory uh, uh, forward uh, quite yeah. aggressively because he wasn't happy with the choice that Martin Bosmar lost again. Of course, he, he's been uh, running a ca- personal campaign against uh, Kadir Arib uh, since before she even got the job uh, because she has a dual uh, a second passport. So you'd have thought he'd be, ha- she, he'd be happy that uh, she lost because now he's upset that uh, Deza Zestek have got the chairmanship instead. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, Burkamp's an interesting character anyway. I mean, she came to D66 through the gay rights lobby group COC. She's been an MP since 2012. It's uh, her responsibility that the Netherlands is going to do this half-hearted experiment with legalised marijuana production. That was something that she forced through the through the chamber. She was also the driving force behind a change in the rules which allowed civil servants who disapprove of gay marriage to refuse to carry them out. So, I mean, she's she's made an impact already. Uh, it's also interesting. She's half Moroccan, actually. Um, but she oh. ditched her she ditched her dad's name her dad's name in her early twenties, which is a bit ironic when you think about it, because she's half Moroccan and she's ousted Arab, who has, of course, a hundred percent Moroccan roots. Huh. Mm. So you think uh, Geert Wilders would only half disapprove of uh, <laughs> of Bergkamp? Yeah, but but she presumably doesn't have a passport though, so she's oh, still know, allowed no, to no. vote in his eyes. No, does she? Does she have two passports? I would imagine she has two passports because well, uh, if you've got well, Moroccan nationality, then you, you you get Moroccan nationality through your father, don't you? So I don't, I don't know. know. I've not seen any mention know. of it. Somebody I, will I ask ha- her. 
A man was arrested last month for plotting an attack on a vaccination centre in his hometown of Den Helder. The 37-year-old man was picked up on March the 18th, but the arrest was only made public on Thursday. Police didn't say how advanced his plans were, but the prosecution service has classed it as a terrorist incident. They said his aim was to terrify the population and disrupt the country's economic and social structures. And it's not the first time that vaccination centres have been threatened or attacked. A month ago, an explosive went off outside a coronavirus test centre in Bovokaspol, and there have also been incidents in Breda, Bekendonk, Uruk, where, of course, a test centre was set on fire during the riots, and Hilversum. Hmm. Um, yeah, so um, how are the numbers doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, in, in, in spite of... Is there better it, news in that, uh, in that regard or not? The, well, it, it is better news than, uh, to, than firebomb attacks on, uh, uh. on, on, on vaccination centres, yes. Uh, the, uh, because the numbers have started to go down in the last week. Uh, according to the RIVM's latest weekly report, there was a 7% drop in the seven days to last Tuesday. And that might have been amplified by the fact that fewer people wanted to get tested over the Easter weekend. Uh, but then again, the positive test rate's only gone up uh, a little, and it has followed a slower rate of increase in the few last few weeks, all of which suggests that the infections have been levelling off. Uh, the current R number is hovering just above 1, uh, although the notorious British variant is now dominant. Um, and also, it's a less good picture in the hospitals, uh, because they're filling up still. Uh, there's more than 2,500 people now being treated uh, for coronavirus, and the number in intensive care is nudging 800, and that's the highest figure since the tail end of the first wave a year ago. And more than two-thirds of all intensive care beds are currently occupied by corona patients. Uh, so we're not out of the pandemic yet. Uh, so uh, not really a good time to think about opening uh, cafes again, as seems to be being mooted. Uh, you wouldn't think so, would you? No, but uh, the government's coming under a lot of pressure uh, at the moment from various people, um, including city mayors, to relax the rules uh, because they say people are getting sick of lockdown, um, ignoring the fact that lots of people are still getting sick of coronavirus. Uh, so a group of mayors have called for pavement cafes to be open from April the 20th, uh, which is the next uh, stage in the uh, possible uh, change, uh, relaxation of the rules. Uh, there's also suggestions that the curfew will finally be lifted. Remember, that was supposed to come in for two weeks and has now been running for, I think, three months. Uh, and the limit on visitors as well could be used from one person to two. And yeah. as we'll discuss later, there's a programme of what's called Field Lab events this month uh, to see if public events can open up earlier uh, with the help of uh, mass testing of everyone taking part. Uh, so the next press conference to announce the latest update to the rules is next Tuesday, and basically everything depends on whether cases continue to decline. And that, in turn, depends on whether we can speed up the vaccination programme hmm. soon. Uh, because, yeah, that keeps um, keeps stalling, basically grinding to a halt. Uh, uh, the three millionth vaccine shot was given this week, uh, but the government has once again had to revise its estimate for the week downwards, um, and that is partly to do with the fact there was yet another pause in the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, the European Medicines Agency uh, investigated uh, this number of reports of rare blood clots from people who just had the jab, and it said this uh, is a possible side effect of the vaccine in a small number of people under 60, particularly women, but on balance, the benefits still outweigh the advantages. I think a week or two ago, they paused the vaccination for the over 60s because they're worried about blood clots. And they looked into it and they said, no, it's mostly in younger people. And to be fair, I mean, these blood clots for the people who get them, although it's a small number, are pretty serious. About one in five of people, I think, who uh, report this side effect uh, die. So, but it's it's I mean, a minute is, fraction, a minute but fraction, it, but it, and this, yeah, but there's people un, there's people under sixty, and any deaths in that age group are you know are a concern. But this dithering, so this is nothing compared to like the birth control pill, for example, which has causes far more thrombosis and blood clots than this uh, vaccine is doing, and the way the whole thing has been managed. People are now refusing to have it. I know four people who've got appointments in Amsterdam because they're in their 60s or have said no, they won't have the AstraZeneca vaccine, which means they go to the bottom of the queue. It's it's a terrible situation the way the whole thing's been handled, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's backfired. I think they, 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 they thought they needed to be overcautious because they were worried about people not wanting to take the vaccine because every time they actually stop it formally, that sends a signal out to people that there's something seriously wrong with this vaccine when there isn't. Well, I, I'm um, going, I'm going. Good, good to hear it. <laughs> what I think they should do, 
the actually is just set up a field lab event with the AstraZeneca vaccine because <laughs> field lab events are all about taking risks, right? Yeah. This is like, yeah. <laughs> should we see whether or not wearing masks makes a difference? Should we see whether or not keeping distance makes a difference? You know, if you're prepared to take that kind of risk and these are oversubscribed massively, these events, why not just get people to say voluntarily, yeah, sure, I'll take the AstraZeneca vaccine, invite 5,000 people to go to a football stadium, get the jab, and then see what uh, see what happens. Oh, God, yeah. what a good idea. Would you like a job? I think the health ministry uh, position might be vacant quite soon. Well, I feel like I'm overqualified, actually, as, as is everybody else, yeah. the person who's got it. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing we are seeing from the vaccination is that um, a real positive benefit is that um, far fewer people are dying of coronavirus now. So even though infections are going up and more people are in hospital, uh, among the very elderly, because remember, most deaths are in the over 80 population, um, the, the, the effects are much smaller. There's fewer cases in nursing homes. It's vanishing now out of that population. And uh, we're now down to about 20 deaths a day on average, which is still, you know, too many. But uh, given that at the start of the year, we were in uh, sort of three, over 100 on average per day, then that really shows you what, you know, benefit uh, vaccination is going to have. And it's like, you know, uh, you can rewrite that old song about, I believe, children of the future. Actually, the, old, the very old are the future for the rest of us, because they're showing that once you get your jab, uh, you're, you're much safer. <laughs> Yeah, and um, the NRS just uh, sent out a push notification that says that hospitals are baffled by the cabinet's plan uh, to re- to uh, of relaxations because the uh, the pressure on the uh, ICU uh, on the ICUs are is increasing very very fast. So they uh, they just don't understand why we are opening everything up while we are still in uh, in this third wave or fourth wave. I I I I, uh, I lost track of it. Yeah, there's a lot of backlash on that, and I think at the start of the speech there was a lot of reports that maybe the cabinet's going to uh, start relaxing the measures. But I think uh, given that how many uh, medical experts have come forward this week and said that would be an absolutely disastrous thing to do, I think they're probably going to roll back on that quite swiftly. Perhaps they should ask the the, the hospitals first before they announce these plans, yeah, right? Maybe. That's a radical idea, isn't it? Just ask the people who are actually on the front line whether or not it's safe to open up society. <laughs> Oh, but if you work in a hospital, you're not necessarily an expert in epidemiology or how viruses spread. No, but you can see how many people are getting sick and how much uh, the health service can can take. And you know, the, the margins are pretty small at the moment, I think. And also, of course, a lot of healthcare workers are off sick at the moment because they've been working so working themselves into the ground over the last year, looking after coronavirus patients. That means there's less capacity. If you don't fancy spending your cash on being part of a mass biological experiment with a virus that's killed 3 million people, there is a safer option. Stay home and sponsor us on Patreon. For as little as a euro a month, you can help the Dutch News Podcast keep you up to speed with the latest news, op-hef and political developments. You'll earn our sincere gratitude, a shout-out on the next show and the chance to ask us a question. We didn't have any new patrons in the last two weeks, but we would like to say a very special thank you to Adam Ford. Adam sponsored us just over a month ago, right after we'd started recording a podcast and in the middle of the election campaign, and for complicated reasons, uh, basically, I forgot, he didn't get a shout-out the following week. So, sorry you to you, Adam. Sol- <laughs> you, ju- you are the Mark Rutte of this podcast. You keep forgetting yes, everything. Yes, All uh, the yes. important stuff you forget. Yeah, sorry, I can't, Adam. I can't remember receiving Adam's message, but I'm very sorry. And, uh, and welcome and thank you for your support. Uh, especially because you did actually take the trouble to ask us a very interesting question, which perhaps uh, is even more interesting in light of the election. Um, the first bit of background uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, about Adam and why he's uh, posed this question. He says uh, he's 21 and from the UK, um, and he first visited the Netherlands with his grandfather, who wrote a book on the Battle of Arnhem, uh, which is oh. almost every British person's reference point to the Netherlands these days. Uh, he spent time in Utrecht as an Erasmus student, one of the very last British Erasmus students, as it turns out, and is now a transport planner, partly inspired by the Dutch bicycling infrastructure. And he's been back in the UK for 18 months and tells us the podcast keeps him up to date with the news in the Netherlands. Now, Adam's question relates to his time in Utrecht because he says he was surprised to find how many of his fellow students uh, were quite sceptical about the European Union. And he asks, if an in-out Brexit-style referendum happened, would the Netherlands stay or leave? So, Hmm. what do we think? Stay. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. But I have to admit, I thought that uh, the, the the people of the United Kingdom would also vote to stay. Uh, so uh, I um, I don't dare to make any predictions on that field. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I think people would overwhelmingly vote to stay in the European Union. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think uh, it's very unlikely there'd be a referendum, first of all. But also, I think, well, if you had, if you ask an opinion poll right now, I think in the immediate wake of Brexit, people tend to say uh, that, that they look across at what's actually happening across the other side of the North Sea and say, that's not really for us. So, yeah, I think people would vote to stay. But I think if there was a campaign, I think a lot of, there would be, you know, we. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very um, loud and influential voices, people like Thierry Baudet, uh, who'd have a lot of um, get a lot of coverage, and I think probably the margin would tighten. I think uh, I think uh, you know the, the vote to stay might be closer than um, uh, than we think, uh, but but, yeah. I, but I don't really see that they'd uh, they'd actually vote to leave. And bear in mind, of course, the last two times that the Netherlands had a vote on the European Union, on the Lisbon Treaty, uh, so yeah. that um, they voted no and they had to go away and rethink it. Yeah, so uh, we don't have a good track, or track record on uh, EU referendums, I think. Yeah, but we are, if you look at any polls, all show overwhelming support for Europe. And as as you say, what's happening in Britain is a lesson in how not to do it. So uh, I can't imagine it ever, ever happening, let alone there being a referendum in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I think the comfort is that they wouldn't be stupid enough to organise the referendum, to call the referendum in the first place. Yes. Yeah. 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 Just yeah, or don't don't uh, call a referendum without a plan. Yeah, at yeah, least do, yeah. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, don't have that David Cameron moment where you where you call yeah. a referendum thinking that you're bound to win. You don't have to worry about what happens if you lose. Yes, well, let's not remember that night, Gordon, shall we? <laughs> it's put both no. and you and I to quite a lot of trouble to uh, sort things out since then. So uh, I prefer to forget and have my two passports and vote in the Dutch general election for the first time. Well, lucky you. Did, did you did you vote in the last elections? No, you didn't, right? No, I wasn't able to. I wasn't Dutch uh, then. Well, um, 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 hopefully the government will. Uh, hopefully the, we will not have uh, new elections uh, very soon. Only after you got your your passport. I'd like to vote. I like voting. It's great fun. Finally. Yeah, I enjoy voting as well. But I can only vote for the water board and the local council <laughs> at the moment. So that's not such fun. Oh, I'm so happy with my red pencil. <laughs> I took mine home too actually. I felt I felt very Dutch taking the pencil with me. Speaking speaking of stolen uh yeah. so speaking of taking things away. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, you are referring to the theft of a a, a couple of paintings, a Van Gogh and a Franz Hals earlier. Well, yes. last year. Well, police have now arrested a man in connection with the theft of both of them. The two masterpieces worth millions of euros were stolen last year and haven't been seen since. The Van Gogh painting was the Parsonage Garden at Newnan in spring and was taken from the Singer Museum in Laren in March, where it was on loan. And the Franz Hals, featuring two boys and a mug of beer, was taken from the small private museum Hofje von Mevrouw von Erden in Leerdam in August. So uh, what have police said about the uh, suspect? Well, actually, very little, uh, given how interesting it is. Uh, he's 58. He comes from Barn, which is quite near Laren. And the police have said the paintings were not found at his home and the hunt for the missing work continues. But it's interesting, police seem to think there's a link between the two thefts. Uh, it gives the story definite film credentials. There we are again. You see, last July, photos of the Van Gogh were sent to the Dutch stolen art detective Arthur Brandt alongside a copy of the New York Times dated May the 30th. And Brandt said at the time the photos had been put into circulation in criminal circles as a sign to potential buyers that it's now available. But he also pointed out that the newspaper in the photo actually carries an interview with Brandt. And that, of course, <laughs> must it must have been deliberate. I mean, Brandt is a larger-than-life character. He's had a role in the recovery of several major pieces, most recently a ring which belonged to Oscar Wilde and a Picasso which was stolen from a Saudi businessman's yacht in 1999 and actually turned up in Amsterdam last year. Hmm, interesting. And of course, we should say these paintings haven't been recovered yet, have they? This, uh... No, no, they haven't been recovered. Yeah. Nobody knows where they are. I mean, I'm sure Mr. Yeah. Brunt uh, is putting out his uh, his feelers with his sources. Yeah, and especially this Franz Hals painting must be rather special because it is, I think, the third time it had been stolen, right? Yes, it is. It's actually a very jolly little painting. It's got these two lads with big smiles and one of them is running off with a sort of mug of beer. Um, and it, it's sort of an appealing thing, but it's actually been stolen from the same 
Aberdeen Museum twice before. It was taken in 1988, along with a painting by Jakob von Rausdahl, and it was recovered three years later. Then both paintings were stolen again in 2011 hmm. and were hmm. missing for six months, but four men were convicted of that theft. In fact, Is um, Hugo de Jong the head of security at that museum? Well, you have to ask, don't you? Because they do say security was stepped up in the wake of the last robbery and the most valuable works, which include the France House, said to be worth 15 million, were kept in a separate area that was only open to visitors under supervision. So they were obviously paranoid about it, but still in both cases, someone was just able to, you know, force open the door and nick them. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah, but given that Arthur Brandt's involved, uh, yes, I expect there's going to be more uh, twists and turns in the story. Arthur Brandt is the Hermann Schenk Willink of, uh, <laughs> of stolen artwork. Just call him and everything will be solved. The Netherlands' chances of qualifying for the next World Cup in 2022 got an unexpected reprieve this week. While the Dutch strolled to a routine 7-0 win over the minnows of Gibraltar, Turkey conceded a late equaliser at home to Latvia. And with Norway having lost 3-0 to Turkey at home earlier in the week, that leaves the Dutch just a point behind the group leaders, and that looked like an unlikely scenario when they went down 4-2 in Istanbul two weeks ago. Could we say we have another remarkable resurrection uh, It's here? not quite as uh, on that scale, I don't think, mm, but uh, okay. possibly, possibly in September we might have a revival. Um, in the next batch of games in September, Oreni will visit Norway before hosting Montenegro and Turkey. Uh, Frank de Boer described the match in Gibraltar as an anti-football game, and he said he was glad it was over. Um, even <laughs> so, it took so. 40 minutes for the Dutch to break down the plucky rock dwellers' defence. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there were fans in the stadium for the Latvia game for the first time, right? Yes, there were, that's right. Uh, this is one of the innovative or utterly deranged, depending on your point of view, <laughs> field lab experiments to stage mass events during a pandemic. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, 5,000 fans were allowed in the stadium on condition they produced a negative coronavirus test. Uh, they were also divided up into nine bubbles to test the effect of different pandemic rules. So one bubble was allowed to remove their masks and sing to see how that affected aerosol transmission. As I said, what could possibly go wrong? But there's, there's more good news, isn't there? Because these experiments are going to continue when it comes to football? Yeah, football and uh, various other events. Not just football, but theatre as well, concerts, um, you name it, basically. Hukko de Jong has announced a programme of pilot events this month, around 450 of them all around the country. People will be able to play football, visit the theatre and the zoo, maybe even have a day out at the Efteling, all under tightly controlled conditions. You'll have to produce a negative test in the door. You're supposed to go for a test afterwards as well to see if you've uh, been infected um, during the event, but uh, they can't uh, make that compulsory, obviously, after you've left. Um, 700 million euros has been earmarked for the first round of events. Uh, the government's also picking up the tab for the tests in April, which is around 200 million. Around a third of the events are in North Holland province, which has uh, seen some of the highest levels of infection in March. So, you know, as I said earlier, what could possibly go wrong? Um, and one sporting event that uh, caught my eye this weekend is in Utrecht, where... F um, it, now, what do we know about coronavirus, how it spreads? I mean, we've had it for about a year now. Well, what are the kind of main danger? Uh, the, 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 the danger areas getting too uh, close to each other yeah getting too close to people like being indoors sort yeah. of um, breathing heavily so coughing coughing sneezing. sweating you know so uh, what sport encapsulates a lot of these uh, these elements do you think indoor rugby yeah, indoor <laughs> rugby is one yeah or uh, or possibly squash yeah. Right. So squash is a, is a sport, right? You play indoors in a confined space. You're running around uh, all around each other the whole time. You're, you're breathing heavily and you're sweating. And so, guess what they're having in North Utrecht this weekend? A squash uh, tournament. A, a, squash, a squash tournament, yeah. Or mm. a squash event. About 500 people have signed up for this to play squash in Utrecht. What, what could possibly go wrong? I'm just speechless. Yeah, I'm baffled. I, I, I can't get it. I, I, I just cannot understand what, 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 why they think it. I mean, it's, I'm not kind of totally against having these events, but it's the kind of thing you might think about doing once you've got like sort of 10,000 infections a week. At the moment, we've got 50,000. Yeah. It yeah. just seems insanity. As you said, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, there was a sad <laughs> event, though, this week, Gordon, when yeah, it comes to was, sport. Yeah, because um, one of the great Dutch Olympians uh, died last weekend, um, 48 years old, uh, Bibian Mentel, um, who had uh, was a snowboarder, um, but also was known, of course, for the fact that she'd had cancer for well over 20 years and spent, spent nearly half her life being treated for cancer, all, nine times altogether. I think she was diagnosed and went through treatment. Yeah. 
Um, she was first diagnosed in 2000 with bone cancer. At that time, she was uh, hoping to compete in the 2002 Winter Olympics. She was the Netherlands' best female snowboarder at that stage. She had the foot amputated, uh, continued to compete in regular snowboarding, and lobbied for eight years in the meantime to have the sport included on the Paralympic program. And in 2014, she got her wish, and she was able to carry the Dutch flag at the opening ceremony in Sochi, and she won a gold medal in the snowboard cross. Uh, but the cancer wouldn't stay away, and... Um, Coming up to the 2018 Winter Olympics uh, in Pyeongchang, it looks as if she's going to have to miss out because she just had an operation to replace her neck vertebra with a titanium frame. And in fact, the NOCNSF uh, didn't um, didn't fund her um, participation in the uh, Winter Olympics because they didn't think, think she'd make it. But she managed to raise the funding herself and she recovered in time from the operation to win gold again in the snowboard cross. Um, but in early March this year, uh, her family announced she'd had an inoperable brain tumour this time and was likely to have only a few months left to live. Um, and at the end of the month, um, it was announced that she had indeed sadly died. But she, she set up the Mentality Foundation, um, which organises sports and physical activities for people with limited m- mobility. And uh, she had a round of final interviews in the last weeks of her life uh, when she said to people, I never say goodbye, but till next time. It was extraordinary, actually. Um doing some research into her and writing it, writing it up for Dutch News just to see how respected around the world she was. You know, for a Paralympian, she, you know, really put put herself and the Paralympics on the map, I think. Uh, and her last public appearance was just like 10 days before she died when she opened a Johan Cruyff court in her name. I thought it was extraordinary and um, a loss, I would say. Yeah, a huge loss, and uh, a very, very respected figure, I think, uh, and uh, yeah, somebody who just you know you you have these things thrown at you, I think, uh, with this kind of serious illness, and uh, you you have to deal with it, and that was her way of dealing with it to keep going and to raise awareness for um, sport uh, for people you know, with very debilitating uh, disabilities and conditions. And yeah, she really was a great athlete and a great human being. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Fish passing through Utrecht have been given their own doorbell, so they can continue the trek to their spawning grounds without having to wait too long. Thousands of fish make the journey upstream in the river Vecht each spring, but because the gates of the Weertsluis lock are not opened frequently enough, the fish are facing long waits in the city's Oude Gracht. To remedy this, Utrecht local council and the local water authorities have installed a camera which will livestream the goings-ons underwater. People who spot a waiting fish can ring the bell and that will alert the lockkeeper. He receives screenshots of the fish and can then open the doors to let them through. The doors will not open for every single fish, but the fish doorbell will mean more work, according to the lockkeeper. Ecologist Mark van Heukelum said the live stream is a great opportunity to see what goes on underwater. The cool thing is that you can see the species of fish that swim here and help them on their way, he said. If you want to take a look at the live stream and help a fish out, you can go to visdoorbell.nl. Hmm. You can also see uh, the screenshots of the most impressive fish that uh, has passed that camera. I'm uh, I'm unaware if uh, if uh, if a Dutch submarine has passed and tried to <laughs> ring the doorbell uh, for a barbecue. That's uh, well, I was gonna say I hope they haven't tried to barbecue the fish. <laughs> Hopefully not, no. But it's a really nice... Uh, I, I, I've seen a lot of people who are just having the fish doorbell on their second screen and uh, they're just working at home and then all of a sudden they see some movement and it's one yeah. of the fish that's passing by and then you can press the doorbell and it will notify the lockkeeper. So yeah, it's a, it's a really nice idea. And it's yeah, really it's really fun. cool. It's re- yeah. It's also... Yeah. There's, I mean, it's very serious behind it as well, of course, because uh, all the barriers that fish have to face to get to their sporting grounds mean that uh, they've got a lot of problems. Uh, Eel, for example, there's all sorts of initiatives to help eels uh, get back into the Dutch waters and the the rivers so that they can uh, go to wherever they have to go. Uh, Extraordinary, really, when you think about it, the impact that we have with, you know, all the waterworks that we do and what it means for wildlife. Yeah, especially in the Netherlands, because, you know, we have so many locks and, 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 uh, and dikes and whatever. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it's a really nice, uh, nice way to help, um, uh, to help the biodiversity, indeed. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the infrastructure is interfering with uh, fish breeding. But, uh, yeah, this seems to be a more successful project as well than the, um, the squirrel bridge over the uh, A44 motorway. <laughs> so uh, the, the, I'm glad to see the Dutch uh, have redeemed themselves with that as well. 
Yeah, this is a bridge where they actually counted the number of squirrels using this, yeah. uh, you know, the, 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 this like um, uh, bridge that connected, uh, I think, uh, yeah, two two nature areas uh, either side of the um, uh, the motorway of Vasana and discovered that three squirrels had used it in the space of a year. Yeah, and that meant that <laughs> that this bridge cost like two million euros per squirrel or something, right? Yeah. It was an enormous amount of money. But this is a lot cheaper. Yeah, we just need a squirrel doorbell. Just, uh, yes. just, just uh, put a camera somewhere, and 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 people will watch it. Yeah. Uh, well, they're probably banned from moving to certain places, like the like the poor old uh, um, raccoons that they've just had down yeah. in Limburg. You know, you're not allowed <laughs> to move around this country freely no. if you're a certain type <laughs> of animal. You have to. Yeah. Well, the badges as well. Remember, they tried to export the badges to Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they ended up in Belgium or something, right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, and also if you're a wolf, then you also have uh, all sorts of bureaucracy that you have to deal with. Oh, well, we did, yeah, we, did a, we did a list actually not so long ago. I think we came up with like 11 different animals which are culled in various parts of the country because they're not supposed to be there. <laughs> no, we should definitely link to that uh, in the liner notes. Yeah, they haven't got the right for Blijfsvergunning. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Gordon Derek and Robin Pascal. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Music.